der Triathlon Show, die Hörung 87. Up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview David Bowden. David is a New Zealand-based bike fitter and coach who also works as a consultant for profile design. David's long background in bike fitting goes beyond just working as a bike fitter, but he has actually designed and been the founder of a software bike fitting software company, uh, Velogic Fit, and they have created 3D motion uh, software as well as aero performance frontal area measurement software that is used in David's studio and many other bike fitting studios. As a coach, David currently coaches, among others, pro triathlete and cycling powerhouse Teresa Adam, uh, but he also coaches a lot of age groupers, so a lot of our training discussion is based around age group training today. We'll get right into the interview after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. And one thing that I haven't talked about before is that Precision Hydration actually offer you a chance to book a free video call with them lasting 20 minutes. So you can do that right on their website by scrolling down to the bottom of the front page. And in the footer part of the website, you can you can just click a link there and schedule a time to, to discuss anything you want uh, regarding hydration, whether it's your general hydration strategy and questions, or perhaps the results of your online sweat test that you can take on Precision Hydration com and that is all for free you can also if you choose to buy precision hydration electrolytes get 15% off your order by using the promo code that triathlon show 15 and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com roca are the world leading manufacturers of wetsuits trisuits swimskins goggles high performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses Roca is a super innovative company and uh, they have uh, introduced features such as uh, the patented arms up technology to wetsuits, tri suits and swimskins. They have Geeko anti-slip technology so that their glasses and sunglasses are impossible to shake off your face. They have their rapid sight angled lenses in the R1 goggles that gives you an expanded field of vision so that you can sight without losing as much momentum because you can lift your head less than you would with most glasses or goggles, I should say. And they have things like the core exoskeleton in their Maverick X2 wetsuit that allows a better connection between upper and lower body for more power and efficiency in your swim stroke. And that is just a snapshot of things that Roka has in terms of technology and innovation all of their products are top of the line and really worth exploring go to roca.com forward slash tts and you can get 20% off your order with the discount code that you'll get right on that page one more quick thing if you are enjoying the podcast don't forget that ratings and reviews really help keep the code podcast growing and going so if you have a few minutes to spare it would be absolutely fantastic if you could do that now without any further ado let's get into the interview with david bowden Today's guest on that triathlon show is uh, David Bowden. Uh, David, uh, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, can you start by just introducing yourself a bit and uh, and telling the audience a bit more about yourself and your background? So, uh, I do several things. I started the bike fit software company Velogic Fit a few years ago, which we created 3D motion capture software 
and a lot of uh, bike finding resources. We sold that last year. I also work for Profile Design as an R&D consultant on new aero bars, hydration systems, occasionally wheels, but not so much. And I also coach athletes ranging from Ironman winners and Olympic hopefuls to age groupers. And I coach the Cambridge Football Club under eight girls, Bengals. All right. Well, that's that's an important addition. Uh, I yes. think that, that you're also coaching a football club. That's uh, that's really nice. Uh, that's uh, my sporting background as, as a as a kid from six to eighteen. Basically, what was was what I was doing. Um, so, if we start with, as you say, you have <coughs> excuse me, many, many things that you're doing, but let's start with the bike fitting aspect and and discuss that a bit. Uh, first of all, how important is a bike fit, and and why is it important? One of the things I struggle a bit with when I go to triathlons is seeing people who've spent an inordinate amount of money on a bike and they haven't paid attention to the most crucial aspect of aerodynamics and performance, which is how they sit on the bike. Obviously, if you're uncomfortable, then you know about that pretty soon. But also, it's the the best way of going faster is to take yourself out of the wind. So a good bike fit will address both of those aspects. My goal is always to come out of the process with the rider being both more comfortable and faster. Yeah. What about power production? Is that also a big aspect that even if you might be okay from a comfort perspective, but you might not be in an optimal position to produce power, is that is that a big thing? Generally, I find that if you're uncomfortable, that's when we'd start to have issues. If you're comfortable, then that tracks pretty well with being unimpeded. For myself, I tried a few years ago a position that lost me 10% of my power straight away, made me really aero, but in the end I decided that for triathlon purposes that trade-off wasn't worth it. But when I'm fitting for others, we focus a lot on joint stability and not being restricted at the pinch points of the pedal stroke. So power production is usually sorted by that focus. All right. Could you perhaps give some examples of uh, what might be some typical improvements? Uh, and you, you can quantify that however you want, whether it's time or an Ironman bike course or uh, whatever it is, speed uh, at a certain power. But uh, when when somebody comes to you for a bike fit and maybe they haven't done a bike fit on that particular bike before, what is sort of an average improvement that they can expect in uh, in their speed on the bike? Well, that really depends on where you are as an athlete. I had one rider recently who they could only spend five minutes at a time in the aero position, which makes the Ironman ride particularly long. So in that instance, getting to a position where they could comfortably stay there for the entire ride that's a significant improvement in their comfort, but that's usually going to wind up being half an hour over the course of a ride. At the other end of the scale, a recent athlete who had ridden 4.49 at Ironman Taupo, because we're still racing unimpeded here, has he sent me some power data. I gave him a rough CDA estimate 
and told him that he was at a good level because we'd worked together, together previously. And he asked, well, if that's good, what is outstanding? For background, he works for the All Blacks, our rugby team. So that's the the attitude that he has uh, brought to his writing as well. And using the frontal area software, we we're looking at a gain of in the range of six to eight minutes, uh, which is what he was aiming yeah. for. So the the scale of the improvement is quite relative because... Six to eight, six to eight improvements, if you're at that level, uh, that's still a big, big yes. improvement because you're looking for every single minute, really. I mean, I, I'm not, I think Ironman Taupo, is, it's a pretty slow bike course, isn't it? Or am I wrong, mistaken? It's roughly one and a half K an hour or a mile an hour slower just due to the road surface compared to international courses. It's a very heavy chip seal. The The course isn't as, uh, oh, there's not as much elevation gain as there was in the past, but it's still not a fast course. Yeah, so 4.49, that was his baseline, is a, is a pretty outstanding time for, for an amateur athlete uh, there on, on that kind of course. Especially in the over 45s, yes. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, so that's uh, that, that's really great to see some uh, the different ranges of what a bike fit can give you. Now, uh, another thing that well, I've, I've had bike fitters on the show before several times, but one thing that has never been discussed and that I do get questions about sometimes is about different tools and systems that are used by bike fitters and if one is better than the other. So I wonder if you could discuss perhaps the importance of just the bike fitter themselves and their expertise versus the tools that they are using, like specific bike fitting software and so on. Well, the standard answer is always that the practitioner makes the biggest difference. But I like to modify that a bit because the practitioner needs to have the right tools at their disposal. So going to a bike mechanic who doesn't have a torque wrench to use on your carbon bike, that wouldn't give you confidence that they can do the job properly, even if they're extremely experienced. Uh, So for a bike fitter, yes, a very experienced bike fitter will do a better job without tools than an inexperienced fitter will do with really good tools. But you want to see that the practitioner is really committed to what they're doing, that they've made the investment in having a range of the best saddles and having some form of motion capture software. If they're going to make claims about aerodynamics, have they got frontal area measurement or they can, can they do uh, a wind tunnel session or a track session or field testing? How are they going to quantify? Because otherwise you very easily get caught up in people making claims, but not being able to quantify the advantage. When I can show the rider, this is your knee track before and this is your knee track after we've made these interventions so that you can see that you're better aligned and uh, more stable, then that's giving the immediate verification of what I've done, which builds the rider's confidence in the process and it lets me know that I'm on the right track. So I I don't think that you can separate the practitioner and the tool entirely. Now, when we come down to the specific tools, everything has pluses and minuses. There are, for motion capture specifically, there are systems with faster cameras, but most of them lose a little bit on the 
marker side of things where there's error introduced by the markers versus the Vlogic bit system that we designed had a slower camera, but there was no error introduced by the markers. So every element of technology, you have to make trade-offs at some point. And when it comes to the top motion capture systems, I wouldn't be so worried about which one a fitter had as long as they had one. And then for the frontal area measurement, that's only BioRacer or the Vlogic Pit 3D Aero system before you get out yeah. into doing uh, actual measurement of full CDA rather than just the frontal area. Yeah. So uh, that, that's a great answer. I, I really like that. And uh, and just can you run through your tool stack again? What what, what do you say that the name of the, the software that you built is? The, the Logic or The Logic Fit, yes. The logic fit, okay, yeah. And that is used for the motion capture and for the frontal area measurement. So those are two different systems, which unfortunately the camera hogs so much of the bus that we have to use two PCs in order to run both at the same time, which that then increases the investment required to do it. But for for me, it's so the same, the same, the same, the same software can, can do both, but you still need two, essentially two, two units to to run them. Is that? It's it's two different pieces of software. The yeah, frontal okay. area software is it doesn't have bike measurement. It, it just as soon as you put something in front of it, it eliminates the background and starts measuring the frontal area of what you place in the detection zone. Yeah, got it. And and uh, are there any? Are you using any other? Do you have any other things in your tool stack for bike fitting that you're using? Adjustable fit bike, adjustable aero bars. Uh, I don't have a saddle pressure system. It's on my wish list, but yeah, I've spread myself too thin to do enough fits to justify it. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, adjustable fit bike is is great for for listeners that are not aware of what the flexibility that that gives can you can you just explain a little bit what uh, what that means and and how that can help people so where i use that most commonly is if a rider comes to me and they already have a road bike and they want to get a tri bike i can then perform their fit on this adjustable machine that allows me to dial the saddle up and down and forwards and back and the bars up and down forwards and back while they're sitting on the bike so it makes it much faster because i'm not asking them to hop off and then adjust bolts so we can resolve between which feels better which position feels better much more rapidly it's also extremely useful if the rider has a bike that cannot be adjusted quickly so the old Cervelo p5 the trek speed concept quite a number of the new superbikes, any new road superbike that has an integrated bar system. We can't change anything. We can't do much meaningful in the bike, but other than just adjust the saddle height. So having the adjustable fit bike allows me to work without those limitations, find out what the rider's optimum position is, and then calculate how can they achieve that on their existing bike or is perhaps they're a, a bike that would suit them better. Or in the case of not having a bike yet, I have created calculation tools for most aerobar systems and tri-bikes, and I can calculate within a millimeter how exactly you should set one of those bikes up. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is great. And 
moving on to how how to find a good bike fitter you already mentioned a couple of things there before with uh, well the experience matters a lot and uh, well the, the, just the skills of the fitter but also having having a set of tools showing that you've done the investment and that yes, you're working with with good tools to be able to get the most out of of your skills and expertise other than that are there any other things how, how should people think about like finding a good bike fitter in their local or semi-local area one of the problems that we come to here is that often the advice is ask around for who does a good bike fit but the issue i see there is cognitive bias that like anything once people have invested in something they believe that that was the right choice because they've made it uh happens with coaching happens with bike shops happens with bike fitters even when uh, more objective measures would suggest that that wasn't the case. So yes, you'd find out, have they got the right tools or are they just uh, using what we'd call the eye-chromator, not actually using any measurement equipment? And if you can find pictures of the work that they've done, compare those to what the fast people from races look like. One of the things that I do is if I'm not racing or if I have been racing, my wife would take the photos, but we go down to the events and we take side-on photos of everyone riding past because that then generates the discussion about how does my position look? And I have a lot of bike fits that start with, I looked at every single photo from this particular race and I noticed that I didn't look like the fast people. So when you're finding a fitter, try to find the one that, yes, they they need to have a good reputation, but also you can see that the people they've fitted end up in positions that serve them well, that they'd still look good at the end of the race. They look like the people at the pointy end of the race. Ultimately, I think uh, Phil Burt made this point in your interview with him, there isn't any regulated standard of bike fit so it is quite murky and difficult to identify who has the skill set but you've just got to pull together every bit of information you can to determine who is going to be able to help you Mm. that is a great answer i i love that Uh, and yeah just pointing out the the risk of running into a cognitive bias there with uh, with the selection so definitely something uh, a different perspective than than what we usually hear uh really good when it comes to looking at comparing pictures of let's say yourself to the fast fastest people in a race do you also have to conduct some sort of subgroup analysis and like is it even realistic for a 50 year old uh who is uh, going to finish the Ironman in 13 hours to look the same as, uh, let's say, well, the pros or the very fastest age groupers that are going to finish in eight or nine hours? Uh, or, yeah, how, how would you, what, what would you consider there in terms of those subgroups, perhaps? That's tricky. But it's the, the point still stands that you, you want to see Because the the number one thing that you see with the fastest people is that they look relaxed into the bike. They're they're comfortable in the aero bars. They're staying there right till the end. And when I take the photos, I don't do them straight out of transition. I like to do them 
a good distance into the race so that people have settled in and if they're sitting up on off the arrow bars by that point you can see that something's not quite right unless they have their bottle in their hand of course so if you are in you're not aiming for the pointy end of the race you still want to see that the fitter has the ability to get people comfortable in the arrow bars for the duration of the race now the the flip side to that is you don't want to go to someone who tries to force everybody into the same position but hopefully if you've done the due diligence that they've got the tools they have the methods of assessing what your particular use case is sometimes i'll have a rider where it's very surprising they can despite age and athletic history they can hold a very tight closed hip angle and assume a position that one might not have assumed when they first walked in the door but obviously we don't make assumptions we we go through the process and conversely you can have olympic class athletes who have zero lumbar flexibility and can't assume a really good position so trying to find the fitter who has the tools generally seems to be able to put athletes into a position where they can hold the arrow bars the entire race is about the best i can offer yeah well that, that's a good answer it reminds me of i quite recently recorded an, an episode about just training process for for older athletes and uh, and what you said there about you don't make assumptions just because somebody is um, uh, like let's say an, an older athlete walking through the door that that they can't hold a have a tight hip angle and, and the same is what i said about training that you don't assume that just because you're uh you're, you're older that you have to train in a certain way or differently than somebody who is younger because there are so many other factors athletic history and so on and so so that's a i think a, a great great point and uh, and yeah I, I like that analogy to the training as well and uh, yeah bringing the bike bike fit and the training in on onto the same level for four different subgroups there yes and uh one final question about bike fitting for people that might be interested in, in maybe tinkering at home and and uh, trying to find opportunities to optimize their position a bit more uh, through the training process. Is this something that you think can and should be done by by athletes and just continually working on that, or or do you recommend that most of these things should maybe come in a more kind of standard bike fitting process and then maybe repeat that? A few months down the down the road if they have for example improved flexibility or or something like that i'm going to guess that your audience are a, a fairly uh, probably educated and motivated group so i'm not going to tell anyone that they shouldn't experiment uh, but it all depends on your level of mechanical skill and your ability to conduct a process Usually when I finish the fit, I'll tell an athlete, look, you can experiment with the tilt of the saddle by one or two degrees if you find that it's not perfect. And if you find that maybe it feels a little bit low on the bars when you get out on the road, then you can raise that, but talk to me first. Uh, But for the athlete who's really looking to optimize their position, then 
there are plenty of things that you can do, but you just you want to be sure of what you're doing. Like I mentioned about bike fit, needing to be able to quantify the process, just putting the armrests narrower because you've seen Tony Martin do it, who has no upper body, and if you're a triathlete, then you probably have some, that's not necessarily going to be a good step. You need to be able to quantify that by doing some form of field testing or back-to-back time trials where you can determine for yourself, did this make me faster? So if you're comfortable with running that kind of process where you make a change and evaluate it by some objective means, then that's great. Now, the subjective side can't be ignored because if you're uncomfortable and you decide to widen your armrests or raise your bars and that makes you feel better, then in that case, that's that's a good feedback loop. But if you're going about tinkering because you want to be faster, then you need to be quite factual about it and determine how am I going to test between these changes? How will I know whether I'm actually on the right track? Often I find when we go through the process measuring frontal area that we'll go start moving the bars down there's a lot of process that happens before we get to the final moving the bars down step to make sure the rider's relaxed into them first. But once we get to that, we'll find there's a point where they get less arrow because they start having to pop their head up in order to see to the, the point on the wall that we've established as their horizon. And often that comes because they're creating tension through the upper body that then pulls the neck. Uh, similarly, with the width of the armrests, we'll find a point where you go too narrow and it creates tension in the shoulders that pops the head up. Because mostly what we're looking for in becoming more aerodynamic is how do we tuck the head into the same wind shadow as the torso. So we don't don't want to be doing things that even in the short duration of the bike fit start to create tension. Because if we're talking about what happens in a triathlon, we're out there for a lot longer than a minute. And if you're getting tension in the short very short duration, then by the end of an Ironman, it's it's going to lead to being significantly worse aerodynamically. So by all means, tinker, but make sure that you have a way of measuring whether you've actually achieved anything. Yeah. Well, uh, the thing you mentioned about tension, I think is maybe a good point to end on, but uh, it sounds like whether you're going into uh, a bike fitting studio and getting a bike fit done there or you're experimenting yourself but uh, that should be uh, at least one of your north stars that you should in, you shouldn't in that short window of time when you're testing a position have tension you should feel relaxed is, is that a correct interpretation of what you're saying yes well if you're tinkering at home it, it's really useful to have someone else capture side on video for you Uh, particularly if you're in this case of trying to get faster, you want to see, is the top of my head closer to the top of my back when I make this change? That's a good uh, first evaluation of, is this position worth trying? My beginning of this was back when I still lived in my parents' house, and my brother and I would get dressed in all black clothing and take photos with a reference area and then pixel count to determine the frontal area differences between different positions. Uh, apparently other people went out partying, but 
that was what we did in our youth. <laughs> so just figuring out whatever you can do. Is it have a grid on the wall? Is it have a measuring tape where you can look at your the height of the top of your head versus the height of the top of your back and use the subjectivity of have I got any tension in holding this position? Am I really forcing it to be able to stay here? One of the things we never know in a fit is what position degradation will there be over the course of a half Ironman or Ironman ride? And we have to go for being as relaxed as possible in that short duration in the hope that it works for four, five, six, seven hours. All right, yeah. Now, uh, some equipment questions uh, as well that I have. First of all, uh, if you can just give your general thoughts on different pieces of equipment that can help you achieve a good bike fit. So things like your saddle, your air bars, uh, your crank arms and, and so on. Uh, do you have any general thoughts around these and others? And, and if you if you have any particular products that you really, really like and, and see that you think work well for a lot of people, then don't hesitate to name them as well, even though, of course, uh, we, we know and we need to be aware that it all depends on the individual at the end of the day. But but it's it's still good to hear if there are some, some products that really pop up pop out to you as exceptionally good. So of late, the frequent outcome of a tri-bike fit is a change in aero bars, saddle, and cranks. Uh, those those are your touch points. They make, well, cranks not specifically a touch point, but uh, they're connected to a touch point. Those three elements make such a big difference, and particularly if you're working on an older bike, I've got several here at the moment where post-fit I need to fit different aero bars because the bars that the bike had can't be tilted, they don't have enough adjustment range, that we simply can't get into the position that we got into on the fit bike that made the rider feel comfortable and confident in committing to that equipment change. And equally, the crank length, we try that on the fit bike. They can feel that pedaling seems easier It improves all of their measurements from my side of things. They feel confident in making that change. Now, the reason that I work for Profile is because I wasn't happy with the standard of aero bars in the market. And trying to launch a product like that from New Zealand as my own brand would be extremely hard. So it's much smarter to work with the, the largest company around. and. What I see as the point of a tri-bike is to set you up to use aero bars because the aero bars are what cradle you into that more aerodynamic position. If you don't have a really adjustable set of aero bars, then you are hampering your ability to optimize your position. So in the products that I've designed, focused on very fine adjustment, not just the overall adjustment range, but giving a decent range in the right zone with fine graduations in every dimension as much as possible. So obviously I have somewhat of a preference for profile design aero bars because I have put that work in to knowing that they can be adjusted in the way that they need to be. Uh, Zip also makes some very good bars, but in the case of the Zip, bars some of their models go for 
a very large adjustment range, but not such fine graduation. But then the more recent models, they've moved to smaller steps and vision have followed suit as well. So I feel pretty comfortable with the impact that the work on fine adjustment range has had on the market. Then once you get into the the top end, you're looking at the fully integrated systems, uh, the the bars that are fairings around the arms, that sort of thing. Those are icing on the cake products, but especially for the home tinkerer, if you can get a set of aero bars, as an example, the profile design armrests when I started had three possible positions. If you move the bolts and the holes, the current ergo armrests have 48 possible positions by moving the bolts and the holes. So that gives the ability to really fine-tune position without making any major equipment changes. Then on the saddle side, I'm personally unusual in that split short-nose saddles really hurt me. I am better with a long, basically, road saddle and not with extra padding. But in general, most people will be much happier if they've got a saddle that really focuses on supporting along the bones and not putting pressure uh, along the center. In general, in a fit, I ask people to point on the saddle to where it's hurting them rather than to point on themselves because that becomes a bit of an uncomfortable conversation. I do find a lot of success with the Jacob Delta 38 because it's a lot narrower than the the classic short styles that we've seen from ISM and the Jacob Type 5. So the the, 30, the Delta 38 is probably the saddle that I've been getting the, the most use out of recently. And they've also done good work on durability, that the, the prongs are joined with a bridge on the underside, which means that the, they don't start drifting away from each other. Aside from that, there are other brands of saddles that I've, I've stopped using so much because I felt that the QC had dropped. And then at the very top level, the dash saddles are very nice, but not everyone wants to spend that. Except I do feel that they get better longevity. So in the long term, you're probably cheaper buying the very high-end saddle than a mid-range one. Yeah. Uh, with the profile error bars that you mentioned, uh, are, can you name the product? Is it the, I mean, the area, is that the entire front-end system? I, I can't remember exactly what uh, the products are called. I have looked at them at, at some point. But what, what are the product names for? for the, uh, yeah, the specific parts that you would recommend there? So I I always feel that I shouldn't be the one left in charge of naming things because I name things like a small child. I like descriptive naming rather than marketing-type naming. But in, in the end, everybody goes along with it. So all profile arrow bars are named as the bracket, the armrest, and the extension. So at the clip-on level, the Sonic bracket, Ergo armrest, and 50A extension, and on the extensions, they are 
angle and material, so 50 degrees aluminium. I probably sell half of what the supplier brings into the country with those aero bars because they give a very neutral wrist angle and they have a huge amount of adjustment. Now, if you need to get your armrests further back, that's where there's a neosonic bracket, which then can then get paired with the same armrests and extensions. As you move up into the, the top level product, that's the area ultimate where there's a specific stem that goes with the carbon base bar and the bracket systems, and you can then choose extensions and armrests to suit. Uh, but they all work on the same principles of giving an adjustment range. And all if you look at the profile design webpage, you'll see a huge range of aero bars. Some of them have higher and lower stack. Uh, some of them have more or less offset. And then you go up through the tiers of how much carbon they have. Right, yeah, yeah, and I th- one one thing to to add as well. Uh, again, I'm not using profile design myself, but I have looked at these products, and and they they looked really really uh, good to me actually. And and with the area uh, ultimate uh, system, you you also had the the option to add the hydration part, front end hydration that uh, looked nice and narrow, and and another opportunity to carry more more fluid on the bike uh, with uh, with a minim- minimal or no aero penalty, maybe even an aero gain. I'm not sure. Quite, quite a big aero gain on most bikes. Yeah, all right. Cool. Um, all right, and uh, oh, oh, so cranks, if we just quickly cover cranks. Uh, a trend that, well, Phil Burt, as you mentioned, he talked about for a lot of people going to lower cranks is something that helps. Uh, I've personally gone to 165 cranks and and i felt that it helped me immensely uh what's your thought on cranks in in general how tall are you 177 so i'm 193 and i use 162.5 millimeter cranks uh i've i was getting cranks cut down 15 years ago and then i was ordering the strong light junior cranks from france which was quite a rigmarole uh then Jacob came out with their 145mm cranks a few years ago, and they've basically sold as many as they could make ever since. Now we're starting to get more options come in, and some of these won't be available to the majority of your listeners yet, but FSA have started doing uh, 145, 150, 155. They've also started doing it with their power box power meter system so i've fitted a few of those they haven't really made it outside taiwan yet and then there are products from brands like aerozyne and crota where they make a crank that you can fit onto an existing quark which is extremely useful for me because when i'm doing a fit and the rider already has a power meter changing crank length becomes a very expensive proposition and it's hard to get that over the line. Whereas if I can say it will be 400 New Zealand dollars, which is around 200 euro, uh, that's not such a barrier. They keep their same power measurement. They just change the crank length and they get the benefits that we've determined during the fit. So I'm frequently fitting 140, 145 mil cranks for men around your height we normally wind up on 
155 millimeters when we go through the process on the fit bike just because that's where they we get the nice balance of feels easy to pedal and all of the stability numbers make sense from my perspective rotor should have a mention here because they have their own inspider power meter system and their aldo cranks are very modular from 150 millimeters upwards and you can either choose to have a spider and chain rings you can have a direct mount one piece spider and ring system or you can use the in spider and an aero crown and have a very slick looking system that achieves your fit goals and can give you power measurement well uh that's well first of all uh <laughs> that, that's really cool to hear how uh well how low in or how how yeah how, how low you go in in the crank length there it's uh beyond what i've heard before and but definitely the same trend as as i have heard but also the availability of systems now seems to be increasing because i do remember my my bike fitter telling me that yeah you could go to 160 or 157 and a half or something but it, it was more of an availability question and it was difficult to find the right equipment but maybe it was just because i didn't know exactly where to look and the right places or maybe maybe even in the last year or so more options have have come up uh, to to make it a more feasible proposition to go to those really low lengths of, well, of cranks definitely for me the last two years have made a big difference in being able to have these conversations because i've hunted out more of these options prior to that it was just the jacob cranks which were great especially for smaller athletes which in general means women that we could get cranks that then meant that they weren't so cramped up but we then had to find are you going to use a power tap are you going to use some form of power measuring pedal are you going to go without power for background my sister-in-law is 152 centimeters so she's the one that really drove looking into this from 15 years ago how do we make sure that she can pedal properly and when as i mentioned in the discussion about bike fitters when you have the tools that you can evaluate your minimum knee angle is too closed your minimum hip angle is too closed now we could address the minimum hip angle by raising your torso but then you're less aero so when i have you know, time trialists who think well why would i need shorter cranks that's a triathlete thing or it's a short person thing and i explain no for you this is an aerodynamic thing you're you're on the borderline of whether you actually <clears throat> pardon me need shorter cranks but if we fit them we can make your torso lower without compromising your power so again it becomes something that it depends on what the rider is after for the majority athlete that i see they just want to be comfortable they want to be able to pedal properly but then when we get to the time trial specialists well it's not about pedaling properly you're already able to do 350 watts or more in your time trial position it's can we make you more aerodynamic and in that context a few hundred dollars for crank arms is really cheap compared to a lot of the aero add-ons yeah yeah absolutely uh and uh 
some other pieces of equipment uh, that are not necessarily bike fit related, but more aerodynamics related or even rolling resistance related. Uh, so, for example, helmet, wheels. Uh, how how much work do you? I guess you 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 do quite a bit of work with with those as well, even though they're not directly related to the position of the rider. So, so can you tell us anything about tips regarding regarding other pieces of equipment to help performers through mostly aerodynamics, but perhaps also rolling resistance? Well, helmets are a good place to start because uh, an aero helmet will make about the same amount of difference as a set of carbon race wheels at around a tenth of the price. So a helmet can be very cost-effective speed, but it's not worth splitting hairs over which one you choose unless you have the system of quantifying. I've been into the wind tunnel and from one athlete to the next had the helmet results completely reversed. And I've been out and field-tested with other athletes and had really surprising results where it wasn't about the aerodynamics of the helmet so much as the weight of the helmet. And you know, mentioned about the short duration of a bike fit. Even in field testing, that's a pretty short duration, possibly more reflective because of what will happen in the real world because you are actually out on the road. So when you think of if a rider doesn't have the neck strength to relax into the position because of the weight of the helmet that's only going to get worse over the course of an Ironman. So my wife in particular is someone who a heavy helmet is a lot slower for her, no matter what you might think from wind tunnel testing. And I've seen other riders who I think that would probably hold if we were to do the testing because they don't have that strength in the upper back and neck to hold those heavier helmets. What I've seen is that the rider tries to fight the weight of the helmet and, and lifts their head up more. So basically for helmets, it's choose one that is comfortable when you put it on. For me, I have a gyro shaped head and it looks nice and it's from a reputable brand that does testing and don't worry about it too much beyond that. Don't, don't go looking at what other people are using, uh, what the brand claims about the aero testing, which national track team has it because they're sponsored to do it. It's just pick something that's got aero design and is comfortable and go with it. Uh, you asked about rolling resistance. That's really significant in New Zealand because of our heavy chip seal. So it magnifies the impact of tire choice. And it's really significant if you are a heavier athlete like me, because that again magnifies the impact of the tire choice. But when we're, we're looking at the, well, I, I like to frame everything in terms of return on investment. What speed per dollar are you going to get out of making this change? And so a set of latex tubes stack up extremely well on the speed per dollar return, because for Ironman New Zealand, for the, an average size rider, that's going to be a little bit over three minutes advantage for the sake of 40 euro or so. Uh, it used to be a lot more of a topic of interest. Again, going back to when I was dressing in black to take pictures for frontal area, I started on the path of measuring rolling resistance by just doing uh, 
rolling tests down a hill and seeing where I stopped and marking it with chalk and doing it repeatedly, getting averages and then comparing different tires and determining that, oh, my old tire preference is holding me back by around 4%. So I changed my tire preference. But that was at the time when Continentals weren't particularly fast. Now, if you just go and get one of the top Continental tires, you're fine. Equally, a, a top Schwalbe or Vittoria tire, you're not going to be going wrong. So and the importance of rolling resistance hasn't faded, but the need for hunting out which is the the best tire or which is the tire that's absolutely terrible doesn't exist so much if you're just getting a good tire from one of the top brands because there's so much more awareness than there was even 10 years ago from the brands themselves well that's that's quite positive on both the helmet and the tire side that that if you if you get a good aero helmet from a one of the bigger brands or a good tire from one of the bigger brands then then you're basically quite 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 set quite good to go so so that's that's positive we don't have to uh, overthink things too much and and just get get too bogged down in the details there well if you've got the resources go off and wind tunnel test and actually get those answers but if you wind tunnel test then you need to make sure that you're testing clothing as well because that can make a huge difference i haven't uh, had the chance to test any of the the latest generation stuff but even just the difference between a cycling jersey that was a bit baggy and one that only had a few wrinkles washed away the difference between helmets and wheels combined so clothing choice is really important placement of your hydration we've seen data from Cervelo that showed that taking the bottle off the down tube on most top end bikes would give you a minute over an Ironman so the the choice of where you put your 10 to 20 dollar or euro bottle cage is more significant than the choice between bike frames in a lot of cases and then when you step up to can you use something like the HSF area system in front of the bike that can make a couple of minutes difference? There are fairly significant advantages to be had or disadvantages just from where you place your bottles or how many bottles you carry. And I like to tick off all of those easy things first. When we talk about that return on investment, it's if you can move that $15 bottle cage and gain a minute, that stacks up a lot better than buying some new carbon gadget that may improve things, but possibly not. So you work through ticking off all of these fundamentals. And then if you've got, you've come to the end of that road or you've got more money to throw around, by all means, go on to the next steps. But the fundamentals of fewer bottles, out of the wind, uh, tidy up the cables, use a good chain lubrication system, tight clothing, good tires, good tubes, and an aero helmet. Those are the the fairly big factors after position, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, well, you talked about clothing earlier, and, and that's actually I, I asked one of the 
the big brand manufacturers for some data that uh, is not officially available on their website. So uh, I don't want to say their name because I probably shouldn't, (laughs) probably not allowed to, but they had tested against several, four or five of the like biggest, uh, the biggest tri-suit manufacturers in terms of like the the high-end tri-suits and in the wind tunnel. And there were some small differences between them, but they had tested, those differences were only really becoming apparent at, let's say 45 kilometers an hour or so. So for most athletes, I would say based on that data that I saw, again, this is just the own, the manufacturer's own data, but, uh, but, but, but again, it seems like if you go with one of those uh, high-end brands, then you're, you can't go much wrong whichever way you go, really. Exactly. As long as it's tight fitting, because it's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the having wrinkles yeah. makes more of a difference than any amount of uh, fancy surface treatment. So yeah. if you can, and the, a tri-suit is generally fairly minimalist. So that helps a lot on that front. Yeah. All right. Well, there's so much we could go into with equipment, but hmm. uh, I do want to go into some questions uh, about, uh, sorry, questions about training as well, because you, you are also coaching and uh, uh, perhaps you can just start by giving an, uh, an overview of uh, your thinking around coaching and, and training. My motto that I explain to athletes is that we train for power which might seem fairly obvious but to explain that a bit further you'll get a lot of people who fixate on say power to weight and they look at that and think the easiest way to improve that is to get lighter but the process of getting lighter often involves being a bit energy restricted which then makes it more difficult to recover and perhaps you may not be optimizing your power as much as possible. When you model these things out, you'll see that there's a much larger advantage from gaining 1% power than losing 1% weight because particularly in triathlon, it's mostly about error to drag, not, uh, sorry, about power to drag, not about power to weight. Therefore, the decisions that I help my athletes make are around how do we set sessions that will elicit adaptation and then you can recover from it and do another one? And how do you recover as best you can from that session so that we can keep building the load in order to gain as much power as possible? Because ultimately, people look at someone like Ghana and say, is it his choice of wheels that's making him so fast? It's no, riding nearly 60 kilometers an hour comes from doing a huge amount of power in a really good position. Focus on the the big thing here. So I want to get people in a, a good position and work on building their power as much as possible. In a lot of instances, one of the early conversations we have is, are you eating enough? And I'll, I'll get athletes to send me a uh, food diary from their day and we'll discover that, no, you're not eating enough to be able to recover from your sessions well and then execute a session well the next day. Similarly, with their training stress balance, that's something that we try to work through early on in the process to determine what does your TSB need to be in order. And just for background, I am fully in the WKO realm of metrics. That's what I've always used, so that's what I'm comfortable with. 
So what does your TSB need to execute a key session well? And when we, we have an athlete who can lead an Ironman from start to finish, time trialing on their own the entire day, breaking records, and yet if you go into a key session with too high or too low a TSB, that person is questioning their life choices, you very quickly figure out this is this is not working. We need to make sure that you can uh, execute these sessions well so that they are building both your physical prowess and your mental strength that you feel confident in what you're doing and you're not wondering, have I gone drastically wrong in my choice of career? And that's that's something that I feel gets missed a bit that a lot of people expect to be miserable through a lot of their training when I would rather that you go out and feel strong for the key sessions, that you come back from them knowing you've executed it well, knowing that it's going to make you stronger for next week, and that generally works out pretty well. But like the equipment side of things, it's it's still return on investment. How can we – what are the big things that we can do that will have the most impact, and we follow that path until we get to – We've, we've run out of adaptations, it's not working anymore, and then you start digging into the, is, is there some new research that shows that there's a specific set we can do? I haven't really got that far, though, because sticking to the basics of a lot of work near threshold, a little bit under, preferably, and doing VO2, if you've discovered that they're VO2 limited, that generally works extremely well. On the overall balance for a triathlete, I, in, in the early part, and by that I mean the first few years of someone's training, we tend to be pretty bike heavy because running takes such a long time to build the conditioning for. Cycling, we can just build the engine without having uh, so much of a stress on the body. So we work on building the engine, doing enough conditioning on the run to be able to carry that strength through. And then once you've built up to being able to run and recover uh, a decent weekly mileage, then we can start bringing in a bit more speed and focusing on the run a bit more individually. But I've seen a lot of athletes burn themselves up very quickly by thinking, I need to run faster and jumping straight into running 100k a week and never really getting anywhere as a runner because they're always recovering from injury. And one of my precepts is that the the best way to hold yourself back is to be injured because you're, you're not training, you're not moving forward. So we'd rather err on the side of conservatism and not get injured because two years of training steadily is going to get you further than two blocks of six months training really hard and two blocks of six months rehabbing. Absolutely, yeah, and I love that point about uh, really making making fueling uh, an emphasis there for being able to hit those key workouts. So actually, in the interview that we did uh, last week with Bjorn Kafka from Aerotune about mostly physiology and metabolism, he really emphasized that and and explained uh, in some detail why it is so important. So, so yeah, I think it's great that it comes out here as well. Uh, and uh, if uh, if an age group athlete uh, comes to you, and what what would you say are 
the one to three things that you would quite often implement to try to get them take them to their next level wherever they might be starting from or well it might depend actually on what level they might be starting from but can you give one to three examples of of things that that you tend to uh, introduce for an age grouper when you start coaching them to to help them get to their next level of performance uh let's see most most of my squad is women in their 40s. Uh, so that means that we always end up having the discussion around energy intake. Athletes in general tend to starve themselves a bit because they've got this imperative to be skinny. And I find that women, because of societal pressure, tend to have it slightly worse. So focusing on you, it's okay to eat, it's good to eat, eating more particularly of carbs i'm not not a uh, restricted carbs school of thought will help you to recover from your training and to train better the next day and that usually we get a, a big improvement in the first few weeks from starting to bring that in that they find they've got more energy generally and they can train a lot better and even just doing that we start to get power gains then uh moving to having a really progressive approach that okay we assess where you are now both in training volume power time trials whichever metrics that we use and now we're going to progress both your general load so overall volume and your specific load which is time and zone how much actual interval work you're doing we're going to progress those week on week so that we get those adaptations and i'll often didn't find improvements of in the first three months of training. It's not that hard to get half to one and a half percent per week improvement in power for an athlete that they may have trained under a coach before, but it hasn't been highly structured training, both in the specifics of the workouts and in the week on week progression. And then the the third thing is probably the, the heightened focus on pacing for executing races that we, we go out, we look at what their decoupling is, we determine their race power so that when they turn up, they just execute what they've already trained for and get to the end of the bike feeling quite comfortable compared to what they're used to. And then they discover that they run better, which has surprised a few people over the years that they've thought they weren't running very much and yet they run better because they get off the bike not overly fatigued can you discuss that uh, finding your goal race pace process in a bit more detail that's uh, that's really interesting so let's discuss that a bit so there's, there's multiple ways of approaching that i have course models for every race that interests me and races that my athletes do. So I'll use their previous race performance data to estimate their CDA. Uh, I can look at the impact of equipment changes on whether that will help them or not. But for the pacing side of things, go through and work out if you go at this IF, uh, sorry, intensity factor, and you have this level of variability based on your training, 
then that will give you a TSS of this. Okay, that's that's going to be too much. We'll dial it back. So usually once we get into the race preparation phase in the last six weeks, the first time out, I'll give them a slightly conservative target for their race pace session and look at the decoupling. If their decoupling is low, next time we go out and go a little bit higher. Often in the first time out, the decoupling will be higher than expected. And so then we'll have the conversation about, are you drinking enough? So the second time out, they go at the same power, they drink more. Okay, you're fine for that. Next time we will raise your target power. And we just iterate through that until we get to a point, okay, your decoupling was higher than I'd like to see and you drank really well, everything went as planned. We're going to dial it back a little bit from there. But then it, that has the advantage of if you dial back by five watts, that makes race pace on the day feel a bit easier and so they feel really in control. But just having gone through those practice sessions and I'm giving them the feedback about this was your decoupling, uh, These are this is how your power is tracking, we're on the right track, they turn up to the race confident. There's no guesswork, there's no uh, hoping that they can maintain some power target, which is what I've seen a lot from athletes, is that they have an idea of their power based on just a very simple percentage of FTP calculation, but that scales according to how fast you're going to go. If you if you don't know what time range the athlete's going to be in, you can't accurately estimate the FTP percentage. So that's why I have the modeling that I have a really good idea of what their intensity factor should be before they ever start doing the specific training. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just for the listeners that might not uh, be aware, decoupling, when you talk about that, that's how heart rate might be rising for a steady power, for example. So so if you're going out and doing a 30-minute interval and, and your heart rate is a steady, steadily increasing curve, you can calculate uh, in software that maybe it was a 5% decoupling or a 10% decoupling or a 2% decoupling, and, and that's what you're you're using there as one of, one of the... Um, the kpis i guess for for those workouts to see uh, how to adjust the power target yes that's probably one of the most key kpis once we get down to the real race preparation phase and looking for a for an ironman looking for a four-hour session that has decoupling in the order of two percent because we've still got a marathon to go (laughs) And that's great because that integrates the fact that you have to do the nutrition and hydration in the training properly because otherwise you're not going to be able to achieve that even with with a very quite low, relatively speaking, power target. Well, that that's probably something to add for listeners unfamiliar with this, that the reason we focus on the hydration is that if you underhydrate, your blood thickens and your decoupling numbers rise. So we want to make sure that the hydration and nutrition side of things is providing the energy it's providing the fluid that you need that we're solely looking at can your heart keep well cardiovascular system keep generating this amount of energy without starting to stress itself more yeah yeah so uh one final question on on this topic then when uh 
can you give two example sessions for this like r- identifying your race pace for a half ironman and then for a full ironman what sort of duration of intervals would you be going for with how long recoveries in between so it, generally i'd start with doing a two by 45 minute and then a two by one hour then a one by two hour and for a half ironman that's usually enough We'll do a couple of the two of the one by two hour, uh, and then if you're going on to Ironman, it's the one by three hour and the one by four hour. There's no rest. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. in in a four hour session, you have downhills at some point, unless you live uh, in in New Zealand. You always have downhills. We don't have a great deal of flat. I'm aware of other countries where you have plains and things where. There's a lot of flat, but that's not something we have here. So you generally get a little bit of rest. But that's where we're looking at. These are really key sessions. So the the rider or the athlete does a mini taper where we bring their training stress balance up to being not as fresh as race day, but fairly close because that way we're getting into the cycle of working out what's your nutrition in the morning what's what are you doing the day before how do we make sure that you turn up feeling really prepared then you can execute this session really well so it's an actual race day simulation it's not you're expected to go out and do four hours at 80 percent as part of your normal training week you're fresh and you're keen and you're all geared up to do that well because doing those sessions tired just makes life horrible yeah yeah and uh, one final question around training then and specifically the bike training part of a triathletes program uh, for half or full ironman and uh, in the context of the type of athletes that that you're coaching uh, age groupers uh, mostly i know you have some pros like Teresa adam uh, but mm-hmm. uh, but if we're talking about age groupers here then uh, but for a typical athlete focusing on half or full ironman and let's say we're still not in the very specific part. We might, but we're not. We're also not in the very early part of the season. So sort of a, like a, a very kind of solid, solid normal training week when we're getting to that point where we'll start to relatively soon become specific for the race, but not quite yet. We're still more working on the general conditioning aspect and improving the bike fitness. What might the bike aspect of a training week like that look like? For knowing fully well that it will be individual, but uh, but can you just give an example? It's as a, a general structure. We'd be looking at Tuesday, Wednesday, ninety to one hundred and twenty minutes with extensive intervals. So that's also called sweet spot. Uh, often that's on the trainer, and then Saturday would be a longer interval session more more around tempo maybe up into the, the sweet spot extensive range and then sunday just a general ride two to three hours uh, less if the rider doesn't have time for my riders who live in busy cities then the the saturday might be an hour 40 and the sunday two hours on the trainer i do like people to get out on the road once a week at the least but we're heading into winter here so when it's becomes a factor of competing with both traffic and the weather. I can understand when people want to spend their time inside with their big fans. Uh, 
and if we break down those sessions a little more, the the Tuesday and Wednesday sessions, it depends on the level of the rider. I basically build workouts at three tiers. There's the around 40 minutes of time and zone set. Then there's the around an hour time and zone set, and that's where most people end up once they're they're pretty fit and they're used to the training. That's where I am most of the time, although I'm not very good at indoor training. And then there's the extra special pro uh, ride everybody into the ground level, which can be an hour and a half of time and zone, usually prefaced by some tempo work just to uh, increase the suffering a bit. I tried, I, I wrote a set and thought I should try it myself on the trainer and I was sick. Uh, a day or two later, so I've I've got given up on that idea of thinking that I needed to test every workout that I wrote because when I'm writing them for athletes much better than me, I just overreach myself fairly well instantly. Uh, and I like to put in for trainer sets. I have a system of micro rests where I give the rider a small break during the intensity block. Outside the, you know, if it's 10 minutes on, two and a half minutes off, they get micro rests inside the 10 minutes because that enables us to get more time and zone without the rider overheating, which is a, a big risk of time on the trainer. We don't do the micro rests out on the road because you've got natural cooling and it's for most people less mentally, mentally burdensome. I don't tend to get people doing Zwift racing because it's too easy to overreach doing that but for most athletes doing that basic uh, four ride structure with the time and zone and overall volume set according to their level we can get very nice power improvements fairly rapidly what will your time in zone targets be for the different levels for the tempo work on saturday Well, if you're the special type of athlete, it would be an hour and a half of tempo before you then go into your three by twenties or something like that. Oh, but wasn't Saturday just tempo, not sweet spot? Uh, and or did I hear it wrong? Uh, it depends a bit. Depends on what we're trying to achieve. Okay. When okay. when you have a rider that gets to the point that tempo is just kind of mucking around and doesn't do anything, then it becomes tempo and sweet spot. Yeah, uh, and like you say, it depends on the time of season. Because once once we get into half Ironman or Ironman specific prep, that ride is just a tempo session because it's the long race prep one. Yeah, uh, earlier in the season, it will be more of a sweet spot level. Mm. Or like I say, for the the crush all opponents athlete, it's tempo and then sweet spot. Yeah. So uh, just for listeners. Uh, Sweet spot might be around, let's say, ninety percent of FTP and tempo around eighty percent of FTP or so. Is that how you would describe yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one final question on that. Uh, thank you, by the way, for the great breakdown uh, of uh, of a standard week. And uh, I'm curious about the Tuesday and Wednesday. So you have back to back sweet spot workouts there. In that is, is that uh, is that a deliberate design that that you want to uh, basically do that Wednesday ride sweet spot intervals when you're already 
carrying some fatigue is is that what what you have had in your thinking there when designing that yes that we're we're stacking the load uh so there's that aspect of building on what we did the day before and usually i'd set the wednesday intervals to be a little bit shorter it's because that's often yep. mentally easier and there's also typically the structure is going to be that the long run would be thursday I find for most people that the day after the long run isn't a great time to try to get quality work done on the bike. So having a structure where you do Tuesday ride, solid run Wednesday, and try for a solid run Thursday, I haven't seen that succeed all that often. So tweak the structure. Obviously, it depends on the time the athlete has available, but that's as my go-to structure, that's where I'd start from. Great. Final question before we go into the rapid fire question questions is: uh, If you could go back ten years in time, let's say, what would you tell yourself as a coach? Uh, if you could give yourself some advice, I would tell myself that you're about to start a family in three years, so train as much as you can right now and worry about coaching later. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's get into the rapid fire questions. And uh, these are just one sentence answers. And the first question is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Training and racing with a power meter. And what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? My gravel bike. And what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? That would be when I don't, when I want to start learning about something, I will build a model of it and just keep adding to it until it gives a reasonable reflection of reality because by the end of that i've gained an understanding of all the component parts and i have a tool that i can use for nutrition or pacing advice or equipment modeling whatever it is uh, that's how i approach things is i i need to model them to understand them that's fantastic uh, what's your background uh, are you uh, some, a scientist or engineer or something I have a degree in statistics. In statistics, all right, yeah. Well, uh, finally, David, tell the listeners where they can find you on the internet and on social media. On the internet would be speedtheory.co.nz. On social media, uh, the the marketing side of the business, try, but I'm really not very good at social media. It's still under speed theory, but it's not particularly active. But the, I think the most recent blog article I wrote was around crank length, and I covered a few of the ways of assessing that. So if anyone's interested in that topic, then that could be a place to start. Yeah. And for listeners in New Zealand, where exactly are you located if they want to come in for a bike fit? Well, there's a slight problem with that, that I had to move out of my clinic last week, and I haven't found new premises because there is a, a massive demand on commercial and residential space right now so we're hoping to be back bike fitting by july but i'm based in cambridge which is for those of you outside new zealand it's a bit above the middle of the north island all right perfect well thank you so much uh, for your time it's been uh, a great pleasure to talk to you thank you very much for inviting me on I hope you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com where we'll have links to David's website, speedtheory.co.nz, 
We'll also have links to a couple of related episodes, two bike fitting related ones with Phil Bird, that we mentioned in this podcast. He's a UK-based uh, bike fitter in Manchester. And then one with, which is about aerodynamics, tire pressure, and smart equipment upgrades with Josh Portner uh, back in episode 235. Josh Portner is uh, the man behind Silka, and they have a great tire pressure calculator if you haven't checked that out so those episodes are all related listening and highly recommended if you haven't listened to them already and are interested in these topics on Thursday, we will have another TTS First Day episode coming out. And then next Monday, I interview Val Burke, who is a coach and physiologist, also New Zealand-based. And she is the coach of, among others, Braden Curry. If you're looking for coaching or training plans, be sure to check out scientifictriathlon.com and what we have to offer there. We have something for everybody there, no matter what your level and your goals are in the sport. Big thanks finally to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take the free online sweat test. And don't forget to take the opportunity to get a free 20-minute consultation with the team at Precision Hydration by scrolling down to the footer of the page and booking a call. And get 15% off your order with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft long.